Good to see you guys. Grab your Bibles, turn to um, 1 Kings chapter 7, and uh, we're going to continue this amazing study through 1 Kings. I love these history books because they're beautiful illustrations and pictures of principles, and it's just a, I love it. So we're in this really fun section with um, Solomon and his reign, and so we're picking up in chapter 7 tonight. Let's pray, and then we're, gonna, we're just going to blast off, so... Father, we thank you so much for your word, as I was just saying. And um, Father, like we were praying before, I want to pray again that even just reading it, we don't, we don't believe there's power in, in concepts about your word. We believe that your word itself is powerful. And so, Lord, even as the reading of your word goes out, there would be like a washing of our souls. There would be like a healing ointment on our souls from your word. And that it would just nudge us closer to Jesus. That's the whole goal of this. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We give you this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So I was bummed to miss chapter 6. I was gone when, when Brian taught chapter 6, which, of course, is that chapter where um, Solomon builds the temple. And if you guys don't remember, David was the one who had the heart to build the temple. He wanted to build this temple for God, and God, in essence, long story short, said, no, but your son's going to do it. And so it's exciting to kind of see that come to fruition. The way this chapter works, it's a long one. I don't know if you read ahead or looked at or peaked or whatever, but 51 verses, you guys, 51. And so we got to just cover some ground, but I want to just up front kind of give you how it's divided. There's kind of a clean break in the chapter. So the first uh, 12 verses or so are going to deal with Solomon building his palace. And uh, we'll talk about that. And then the rest of the chapter deals with really the, the temple furnishings. The temple proper was covered in chapter 6, but the temple furnishings, and by furnishings I mean like, uh, you know, the, the, the labor for water and things like that that kind of correspond to the stuff that was in the tabernacle. And we'll kind of talk about that. So... Let's just jump in, and actually what I'd like to do is uh, back up a little bit, as if the chapter wasn't long enough, and we're going to back up and look at verse 37. I'll do this fast, but it just kind of sets the stage. Verse 37 of chapter 6 says, In the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in Mount Siva, in the month of Siva, excuse me, not Mount Siv, that would be a totally different thing. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts according to its specifications. He was seven years in its building, verse 7, or chapter 7, excuse me, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. Later on in Chronicles, other places, we see that in this 20-year span, Solomon built the temple, and he built his palace. The first seven years of that span... The first seven years were concentrated on the temple. Then he took 13 years to build his own house. And there's some people that kind of say, oh, see, Solomon's way out of whack right here. His priorities are all wrong. He takes almost twice as long working on his own stuff and only seven years on the temple. And that's a take you could look at that with, but I personally think it's the opposite. See, this is like at the height of Solomon's like walking with God. He goes into left field later on, but I think the fact that he got it done so quickly and so efficiently in those first seven years 
And especially when you consider the magnitude of the project, the glory of the temple, it really just speaks to the fact that this is the one time where Solomon got his priorities right. He was seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then kind of, in a way, meanders his way through building his own house. And so there's a lesson in that for us, for sure, you guys, and, um, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Here we go. Verse 2. Now we're going to get some of the specs of his house, and we're going to go through this fairly quickly, um, but let's go. It says, verse 2, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. That was the nickname, if you would, for his palace. Its length was 100 uh, cubits, so it would be about 150 feet. Its breadth was about 50 cubits, or 75 feet. A cubit was about 18 inches. And its height uh, was 30 cubits, or 45 feet. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars and was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. And there uh, were window frames in three rows and windows opposite windows uh, in three tiers. Verse 5, all the doorways and windows had square frames and the window was opposite window in the three tiers. Verse 6, and he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth was 30 cubits. And there was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. Verse 7, he made the hall of the throne which was to pronounce judgment. So this judgment hall. Even the hall of judgment, it was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court, back of the hall, was like of like workmanship, excuse me. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. Now let's just pause there for a second. Um, real quick, just for a point of clarification, when it calls in verse 2, the house of the forest of Lebanon, it wasn't that his house was built in Lebanon. The idea was is that all the cedar that he used for the house came from Lebanon, up north, or east in, yeah, Lebanon, north. So he grabs all those cedars, and it, there was so much cedar, it's like walking into a forest is kind of the idea. So cedar panels, cedar beams, cedar everything. So the nickname of the house was the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now look at verse 9 for a second. It says, all these were made of costly stones, according to measure, uh, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation of the, um, to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. Verse 10, the foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of 8 and 10 cubits, like 12 feet, 15 feet. And above were costly stones, cut according to the measurement um, and cedar. Verse 12. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court and the house of the Lord uh, and the vegetable, uh, not vegetables, vestibule. How do you say that? Vestibules. Vestibule? Vestibule. Somebody help me. Vestibule. I was totally going to say that next. Uh, of the house. Vestibule. Okay, got it. Okay, so again, I mean, you can go back and, and dissect this as much as you want in your heart's desire in your own time. The one thing I do want to draw out of his palace that just kind of struck me as I read it is in verse 10. Just look there for a second. It says this. It's going through this, you know, pretty interesting description of how wonderful and gorgeous and beautiful and opulent this place is. And then in verse 10 it says the foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. 
And I just appreciate the fact that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record how costly and beautiful and big and important the foundation stones were. You ever had the, a, a tour of somebody's really nice house? Or maybe like Hearst Castle in California or some, some place where there's just like, you walk in and you're like, oh my gosh, this is like rich and famous or beautiful, whatever. You know, you never really see people going and go, oh my goodness, oh, awesome beam across. I love the open concept, beautiful tapestry. Oh, this is, I love what you do with the windows. Do you have any crawl space? I'd really love to get my eyes on your foundation. Like, like no one really cares about that. But I love the fact that he mentions the foundation, that it was not just foundation stones but moving on. He, he says they were costly, they were big, they were important. Because, listen, in, in the physical realm, and I'm not a builder, but I do know this much, that really the most important part of any building is what? Is foundation. Because you can have the most opulent, beautiful, wonderful structure, but if the foundation isn't set and strong and able to withstand, you know, movement and water and all the rest, the rest is just going to come cr crumbling down. We know that. Jesus talked about, you know, if you build your house on the sand or the one who dug down and built on the rock. And ultimately what I just want to say at this point is ultimately we know that for the church and for us, the foundation is Jesus. Amen? When he was talking about the church and he was using the analogy of a building, 1 Corinthians 3, he says, there's no other foundation that that can be laid and that foundation is Christ. It's the same in our lives. The foundation of our lives as believers is Jesus. How we build on that foundation is up to us, but the foundation is Christ. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to, to practically pull out of that is, is this. For all of us, there needs to be, if we're going to have the building that is of any worth up, that's the seen part, if you know what I mean, we've got to have an unseen part that's strong. It's really easy to come to church and be seen and be known as so-and-so or so-and-so's wife or you're, you teach a Bible story, you lead worship, or you just kind of look like your family's all together all the time. And I'm not saying that you, you necessarily try to put that off, but you, some people do. But you know, all that's fine, but if there's no hidden life, if there's no hidden Secret, you guys, are you tracking with me? Secret part of your life. That can look great as, as much as it wants. It can be opulent, to use that analogy or whatever. But unless there's a firm foundation, unless that's going on all the time, man, there, it's really going to crumble when it's all said and done. Amen? I know friends and, and people that I've just observed over years that, man, they love to teach the Bible and they'll go and, they, and they've got like the ministry thing down, but, but there's not really any private, unseen ministry and really like an iceberg, to use that overused analogy where, you know, you see an iceberg, you're only seeing what? The tip of the iceberg. There's so much more going on underneath. I, I really believe that that's how it should be with us. To whatever degree we're, we're seen in ministry or seen in public, whatever great things are happening, that's awesome. Praise God. But really, it has, there has to be the unseen. There has to be that hidden life that's really the strong part of our lives. So all that to say is I, I just thought that was kind of a neat addition that the Holy Spirit saw fit to add verse 10. Let's keep moving because, like I said, a lot of material. Verse 13. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit because um, though the temple itself has been described, now we're going to look at some, not all, but some of the furnishings that would adorn it and be functional for the, for the um, did I say tabernacle? 
If I say tabernacle, forgive me, because in Exodus we're doing the tabernacle, and that's where my brain is. So look at verse 13. King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre, and he was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker of bronze. And he was a man full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. And he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Quickly, this is important. Before it starts talking about all this, all this detailed work, um, it, it names this guy Hiram. Now, this is what's fascinating. He's, his mom was Jewish. His dad was, if you would, a Gentile. But he lives up in Tyre, which is, um, you know, not in the Jewish territory. And, he, and he's the one that's kind of commissioned to do this work, contracted to do this work. Doesn't it remind you, if you're familiar with Exodus, it's interesting. There was all this elaborate work that had to be done, and God taps a guy named Be- Be- Bezalel, Bezalel, however you pronounce his name. And he's the guy that does all the extravagant work. Um, for the tabernacle. My, my point is, it's a simple one, but I think it's an important one. Guys, Hiram, he wasn't, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a worship leader. He didn't lead any kind of ministry at the church. He's a builder. He, he's like a specialty guy in bronze work. He, that's just how God gifted him. It just was easy for him. He had wisdom in those things. His, his dad was good at it. He's good at it. It was just so, it was almost one of those things where like, I don't even, why isn't everybody good at this? This is what I do. But that's just his gifting. Does that make sense? And he's the guy that gets to build all the stuff that goes in the temple that is like super important. And to me, and again, this isn't like a, a hard application to connect the dots, but I just love this. It, to me, it speaks of how in the body of Christ, the church, every person has a, a place to, to function. That's what Pastor Steve was talking about today. We all have an important role and, and look at how God uses, you know, these analogies or metaphors to describe the church. He, he calls it a building. A building is made up of different parts. He calls it a body. A body is made up of different parts. And those are the analogies that are used. And I say that maybe just to encourage some that, you know, I'm not seen or I'm not that or I don't do that. Listen, God has gifted you in a way that is specific to you. And, man, you are at your best when you're doing what you do for the kingdom of God. Amen. I love that. So one of my favorite verses of late, just to touch on it and move on, is um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. When I was in Oregon, I had the opportunity to speak to all the Calvary Chapel pastors and their wives and leadership and everything. And one of the points that I was stressing in that is um, in Romans 1, 1, Paul says, as he introduces himself to, to the Romans, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And I've, I love the order of that. He says, here's my identity. I'm a servant of Jesus. That's who I am, but I'm called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so I love that because you can fill in your name. You, Chad, I'm a, who I really am is just a servant of Jesus Christ, called to work as a deacon or whatever at Calvary Chapel North Shore. Or, or you know, Isaiah, who I really am is a servant of Jesus Christ. And now that I've got that identity solidified, I just do whatever he tells me to do, but he's called me to do this. Does that make sense? When you get that down, that your identity is in Jesus, that's who you belong to, you're his, and that he has a calling, man, you'll do anything because you just belong to him. And But he's given you a calling. He's given me a calling. And part of the fun of the Christian life is saying, Lord, what's my calling? What do you want me to do? And I know a lot of people struggle with that. But can I suggest this? Right now your calling 
is right where you are. Right exactly where he's got you. For now, it may not be the ultimate calling on your life, but for now, where you're at is where you're at, and the old thing is blossom where you've been planted. Just do what God's put in front of you to do. Well, let's move on. This dude is hired. And the first thing that he builds is he's going to talk about these two uh, pillars of bronze. So check this out. These would go in front of the temple. He cast two pillars of bronze, 18 cubits, about 27 feet high, uh, was one pillar. And a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference, or like 18 feet in circumference. These things were massive. It was hollow. Its thickness was about four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals, or these, you know, you know what a capital is, like a little or, ornate thing on top, of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. And the height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. And there were a lattice work of checkered work and with wreaths and chains for the capitals on the top of the pillars of lattice, for the one capital and a lattice uh, for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around one latticework to cover the capital on top. And it goes on and continues to describe that all the way through verse 22, and you can read it on your own time. But here's what I'd like to show you. Verse 21, he says, He set up pillars and vestib- at the vestibule of the temple. Yeah, nailed it. And he set up the pillar on the south, and he called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was a, a, a lily work, thus the work of the capitals was finished. And so he makes these two huge um, pillars that were all together with their capitals about 34 feet high that would stand in front of the temple. One he named Jachin, which literally means he will establish. The other he names Boaz, and there's a couple of different translations for what that means. But um, the one that most people go with is in his strength. So Jachin, or Jachin, Jachin, however you pronounce it, would be he will establish, and Boaz would be in his strength. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but kind of interesting to me that he named the, the, the things. Either he's really proud of them or something, but, but I, I, more than that, you guys, he will establish in his strength. And where are they placed? At the temple. The temple is the place where God's presence is. The temple is the place of worship. And guys, where is any man, any woman established and strengthened when they are in God's presence, when they're in worship, when they're with God's people, when they're there. And that's, you know, we use the term, oh man, he's a pillar of the church or she's a pillar of the church. We're talking about, man, there's strength, they're strong. We look to them for stability. You get that way by being where God's presence is. You get that way by being where there's worship and there's the word of God and there's fellowship. Amen? I was thinking about this. There's one of my favorite psalms um, in Psalm 92. Just jot it down. If you want to, you can read it later. You don't have to, but it's Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. I'll just read this. It says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree, and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God, and they still bear fruit in old age. And they are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And I love that. It's a different picture, not talking about pillars, but palm trees. And he he likens the one that is planted in the house of the Lord is like a palm tree that grows up and is full of sap and bearing fruit even when it's old. Point. The man or the woman 
that plants themselves at the temple, so to speak, at church, where there's gathering, there's worship, and there's fellowship. That's how that person gets established and, and grows and is fruit. Not the only thing, but guys, and I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but I am convinced because of what the Word says, because of the experience of my own life, and because of observation and maybe observation from a, a unique perspective as a pastor. Those who plant themselves in the house of God, there's a flourishing to them. There's a stability to them. There is an unwaveringness to them. And those that are kind of hit and miss and kind of poke their heads in, and they come and they sit and they listen, but they never get involved with people in the church and they never actually serve and they're not actually a part of the body. They're, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, and I'm not saying it's this way all the time, but generally speaking, their walk with the Lord is less fruitful, less stable, and 10 years down the road, and they're like, where are they? What are they doing for the kingdom of God? But yet you show me somebody who's at church when the doors are open, not out of legalism, but out of like, man, I just, I got to be where God's people are. I got to be where worship is happening. There will be a stability, a fruitfulness to your life to, even when you're old. Amen? So you guys got that. Tell your kids. I was on my way out the house, classic. I was home earlier. I had to leave to get studying for tonight and then I went back home and I was playing with JJ we we're doing Legos in the bedroom and I'm like buddy I gotta go to church and he goes again you're going to church again I'm like yeah you know why church is awesome JJ and I get to teach the Bible and church is awesome and I'm gonna tell him that every time I can I'm not gonna say well church is good but I, you know sometimes the leadership does this and the pastor da, 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 da. you wonder why sometimes our kids are a little bit cynical about church I wonder if they're just overhearing our conversations on the way home from church Make sure that we're talking well about God's church. And, and I, I'm just trying to instill that into J.J. right away. Yeah, I'm going to church again because church is awesome. Boom! J.J. Anyway. Well, let's move on. So, important piece of furniture, if you want to call it that now. Look at verse 23. It says, then he made the sea of cast metal. Now, this would correspond to something we haven't talked about yet on Wednesday night, but we're getting there, and that's the, 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 the brass laver. Um, this was, th these things are, are corresponding to uh, the, the things, the furniture that was in the tabernacle, but you've noticed by now that they're bigger, there's more of them, they're glorious, they're made out of different materials, and lest I forget to say this, I think a part of that, if you've ever wondered, how come the tabernacle was, you know, pretty homely looking from the outside? Yeah, glorious on the inside, but kind of homely and goat skin and hair and, you know, whatever. But the temple, there's nothing homely about it. I mean, it is opulent from outside to the inside. It was glorious. It was, I mean, just a sight to behold. One reason for that may be that the tabernacle really spoke of Jesus' first advent as God became a man, so he was both man and God. We've talked about how there's earthly kind of, you know, materials like wood and then goat skin, but then there's gold. It kind of speaks of the dual nature of Jesus. But the temple speaks of Jesus' second coming. It's all glorious. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, he's not coming in humility and and all of, he's still the God man, but he's coming back to rule and to reign in righteousness. Amen? And so it's all glory. Well, that could be one reason all of this was allowed to be made with such, you know, um, splendor and, 
in Numbers. Look at verse 23. It says, this sea of water was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, about 15 feet from brim to brim. Um, it was about 7 foot and a half high. Um, its circumference was about 45 feet. Verse 24, under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits, compassing the sea all around. These gourds are kind of decorative ball things. Were in two rows, cast with it. Um, it was uh, cast within when it was cast. Verse 25, it stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. And the sea was set on them. Um, all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth, several inches. Its brim was like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths or somewhere around 12,000 gallons. And so what this was was a big, old, gnarly 12,000-gallon bowl of water sitting on the back of 12 oxen. And, and they're just all kind of sitting there with their heads poking out three in each direction, and that thing sat on there. Now, what was that for? Again, we could draw a lot of things out. Maybe we will in the Exodus study. But for tonight, here's the purpose of, of that massive amount of water. It was for the priests. It was for the priests to wash. It was made out of, of polished bronze. And the idea was you'd be able to, almost like a mirror, be able to see. And, you know, the priest's job was a, a great job, but it was a bloody job. It was a messy job. They were killing animals for sacrifice and there's not any way you cannot get blood all over your hands and splatter on your face or whatever and the water was used to cleanse now we're about to see that um there's going to be 10 more basins of water and we'll talk about that in a second but this seems like it served as the great reservoir for those other 10 basins quickly if you were here last sunday night we had a little bit more of a time of prayer and worship and communion and waiting on the lord and one of the things we were talking about that I brought up was that water in the Bible very often is typical of the Word of God. It's, it, it's used for other things too, but Pastor Steve brought that, that, that out today. In uh, John 15, Jesus said, you're clean through the what? The Word that I've spoken to you. Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and washing them with the water of God's what? word and just like water cleanses and just like water refreshes there's a cl and cleanses and refreshes and revives you can go on and on the same thing happens with the water of god's word when we're just taking in the water of god's word there is a, such a refreshment to our soul and a cleansing of our soul me and austin were just talking about this tonight you know man 51 verses and it's kind of technical but you know there's something wonderful just in reading that because I believe the Word of God just has this cleansing and refreshing effect every time we'll read it. Amen? It really does. I, you guys can relate to this like I can. You know, I try every morning to get up early and spend time, not just in a rote way reading the Bible, but really spending time with Jesus while I'm reading the Bible, letting his word get into me. And just like you, I get across sections that maybe don't really pop out at me. But even in those, I walk into my day feeling as though, man, I have the word of God that's washed into my soul. There's just a cleansing, a healing, a reviving effect of the word of God. I think a lot of, a lot of Christians, honestly, are just shriveled up because they're just not spending time soaking in God's Word. 
And, and sometimes, you know, and I get it. You know, when you first start, you're kind of like you play Bible roulette and you flip open and you're like, oh, God, speak to me. And sometimes he does and it's fantastic. But you got to kind of grow beyond that. And there really needs to become a spiritual discipline and maturity to the way that you take in the Bible, letting it just get into you over and over. I shared the, quickly um, something I heard. I shared this last Sunday, but laugh anyway if you were there. Um, somebody once said, well, you know, I try to re- memorize the Word of God. I try to get it into my brain, but it's like my brain is like a sieve, and it just goes right through. And I heard somebody once say, well, at least it's a clean sieve, right? At least you're getting it in there, and it's cleansing through. So anyway, all that to say, the water speaks of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, other things, but for tonight, we'll leave it there. Wash and drink in the Word. Well, in verse 27 through verse 37... Okay, I'll just kind of start it. We may not look at every little detail, but look at verse 27. He also made ten stands of bronze, and each stand was four cubits long, so about six feet, and four cubits high, and three cubits, um, or excuse me, six cubits wide, and three cubits high. Then this was the construction of the stands. They had panels, panels that were set in frames, and on the panels that were set in frames were lions, oxen, cherubim, so they were d- decorated with those things. On the frames above and below the, were lions and ox and were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels um, and axles of bronze, and the four corners were supported uh, supports for a basin. And the supports were cast with wreaths, and so it's decorative, on each side. Verse 31. Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit, and its opening was round as a pedestal is made in a cubit and a half deep. And its opening was were, uh, were carvings and panels of square, not round. Verse 32, the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were on one piece with the stand. And the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. Verse 33, the wheels made like, were made like chariot wheels. Their axles, their rims and spokes and their hubs were all cast. 34, there were four supports at the four corners of each stand, and the supports were on one piece with the stand. And on the top of the stand were a round band of half cubit high, and on top of the stand it stays, and its panels were in one piece with it. Verse 36, and on the surface of it stays, and on its panels were carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. And after this manner he made the ten stands, and all of them were cast alike of the same measure and form. And he made 10 basins of bronze. Each basin held about 24 baths, so somewhere around 240 gallons. Um, For each basin measured uh, six cubits, and there was a basin on each of the 10 stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house, five on the north side of the house, and he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. So again, in your time, you can go back and read those again and do the, the layout of where everything would be. But suffice it to say is, here's what these were if you're confused. I was confused when I first read this. Why are, why are these ten stands that have wheels that are clearly mobile and they have basins of water on them? Evidently what these were, five on one side of the courtyard, five on the other, were basically portable butchering stations. And, you know, when you think about the feasts in Jesus' day when you know, Solomon's temple was still there. It had been, um, excuse me, not Solomon's temple, excuse me. Uh, I take that back. It was the rebuilt temple. But both in Solomon's day and in Jesus' day, for sure, 
when people would come, they came by the thousands. They came by the tens of thousands. And so it wasn't like one person strolled in on Passover. No, you're talking about there's a line out the door with people with their sacrifices. And so they were doing multiple sacrifices at a time, like 10 at a time. Does that make sense? And so basically this is just like Henry Ford, you know, like mass, you know, operation that was going on. Each of those 10 basins held water, and the big basin or the sea was probably the reservoir to supply those. That's up for debate. Quick point on that. We're going to move on. I was thinking about this. If you read Ezekiel chapter 40 and on, when you're speaking about the return of Jesus Christ, something that's got a little shocking to our minds is this. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. And it would seem as though that when that temple is built, this is after the tribulation, after, P, after judgment, Jesus is ruling and reigning. You have people that have lived through the tribulation. They're having kids. We'll be there. There's going to be worship at the temple. And here's what's kind of a trip. There's going to be animal sacrifices happening at that temple. Ezekiel chapter 40 talks about it clearly. The point is, and where people stumble on that, they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Why would there be animal sacrifices? If those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were there to foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, that he would be the Lamb of God that would die once and for all, why would there be a need for more animal sacrifices? The simple point is this. It's not as though people are bringing those to gain forgiveness of their sins. The idea would be more of a memorial. As they bring those, you have to remember, there's people being born into that era that have never, weren't around for any of this. And so the picture that we enjoy of like, you know, the wages of sin is death and there has to be a substitutionary price, that would be a vivid picture and is going to be a vivid picture for all during that time, again, of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. We're going to be worshiping Jesus for his sacrifice all through the millennium, all through eternity. Amen? So I don't know if that helps. Lastly, okay, introduction over. Let's get to the sermon. Verse 40. I'm going to do this quickly, but please don't tune out. I know that this can be kind of tedious, but just kind of listen with me as I read this catalog of stuff that Hiram built. And I just want to tie it together with one application as we go. Hiram also, verse 40, made pots and shovels and the basins. He finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. Verse 41, two pillars, two bowls of the capitals. We already went over that. We're on top of the pillars. Two lattice works to cover the bowls on the capitals that were on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates of two lattice works. Two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. Ten stands and ten basins on the stands and the one sea with the 12 oxen underneath. You know, just saying, man, he did all of this work. It's real detailed, expensive, hard work. Verse 45. This I love. This is the part I like. The pots and the shovels and the basins and all the vessels in the house of the Lord which Hiram made for King Solomon were of burnished bronze or polished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan and the kings cast them in the clay of the ground between Sukkoth and Zerathan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them, the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table. So here's the other pieces of furniture that we, weren't, uh, that we hadn't heard from yet. 
There was the golden altar, uh, which would be the altar of incense, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold, uh, five, now notice this, five on the south and, uh, side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the cups, the snuffers, the basins, dishes for incense, fire pans of pure gold, the sockets of gold, the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. So you're talking about bowls and spoons and basins and hinges and all that stuff. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things that David had, his father had uh, dedicated for silver and gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. I know I briefly went over, like, the lampstand and things like that. Notice there's like 10 of them here instead of like one in the tabernacle. We'll, we'll kind of talk about that more later in the tabernacle study, but this is what I want to just cover. See, when I read that last section, I mean, you might say, why is there just like this catalog of stuff listed? Like, okay, he made basins and shovels and tongs and little, you know, hinges for the doors, and, and they're just all laid out, all these little things. And here's the thing. Whenever I get to this kind of list, uh, the list of all these seemingly insignificant, and some very significant, but some seemingly insignificant little pieces and, I don't know, components and vessels and shovels and all that stuff, every time I read that list, for me, it serves as a wonderful, listen, illustration of what holiness is. Just allow me for a second. That little shovel that was scooping ashes from underneath the altar was designed and then formed and then made out of a certain material to be used at the temple for a specific purpose. Does that make sense? I mean, the whole existence of that shovel, it, it had, sure, it had the capability of being used for other things, but this particular shovel was made for this particular use out of this particular material to be used in this particular place for the honor of God. When that shovel was being used to scoop ashes of a dead ox, it was fulfilling its life's purpose. Right? If that shovel was taken away from the Temple Mount and used for some other purpose, any other purpose, it's now defiled and it's falling short of its purpose for which it was designed to be used. Let me give you a personal example and then a biblical example to kind of drive this home. Personal example. One shouldn't use a kitchen spatula to, oh, I don't know, let me think of something completely random and unrealistic, scrape surf wax off your surfboard. Your mother will not appreciate it. <laughs> your wife will not appreciate it. I know, I know. I'm just saying this. My wife did not appreciate. Honey, where's the spatula? I needed it. It was for a greater cause. <laughs> I've defiled that spatula, right, in my, mind, in my wife's eyes, not in my eyes. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He's there and he's in the castle and he's throwing a party and he does something crazy. He calls for all of the utensils 
that were in the house of God, the temple, that his pops, his grandpops, had stolen from Jerusalem. And he brings them to the party, cups of gold, cups of silver, all these things that were intended to be used in temple use, priestly service, and they start drinking wine out of them and getting drunk and praising the gods of gold and silver. And you guys remember what happened next? A hand, just a hand, not an arm, just a hand, shows up and starts writing on the wall. Thus the proverbial say, saying, the handwriting's on the wall. This is literally the hand writing on the wall. Meaning, meaning, tekel you farsen. Numbered, weighed, found, wanting. Guys, remember that? It says Belshazzar's like, his knees were knocking, literally probably lost control of his bladder. He was so scared. Calls in Daniel. Daniel gives the interpretation. I always think of that because why? Those cups, those utensils were designed to be used where? In the temple. To use them to drink, to get to party with or get drunk with or, and then blaspheme the gods. I mean, A, those, those things were not being used for their intended purpose. B, it ended up blaspheming God. Now bring it back to us. The Bible says that we're vessels, right? Earthen vessels. The Bible tells us, let me just read one verse. You could pull many, but I'm just going to read one and I don't mean to beat this dead horse or anything, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. And again, I could, I could pull many. You know, you can too. You can look it up. Chapter 1, verse 15 says this. But as the, is he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, sometimes when we read that, we think holy, holiness means sinless perfection. And maybe there's that aspect. But the root meaning of the word holy literally means set apart. Just like those cups and vessels, they were set apart because they had a particular specific use for the kingdom of God. Amen? We're to be holy. And what that means is we're to be set apart for the specific and exclusive use of for God's kingdom. Amen? That's why Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, this is your, sanctifi- your sanctification, um, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Your body's not meant for that. It's meant for the Lord. Sanctification, by the way, same root word as holy. It means to be set apart. Guys, here's the thing. When we talk about holiness, we got to get this through our head. For our sake and for the sake of those that we're influencing, whether it be our kids or just people we're discipling, don't be scared off by the word holy when it says, be holy. you got to be holy. Holiness is not something we should be like, oh, that communicates just like restriction and no fun and stiff and, you know, like. No. Holiness is awesome. Why? Because when you are holy, set apart to God, you are finally being used for the purpose and reason you were designed to be used. You will find your ultimate fulfillment when you are a life that has been fully given over to God and God is using your life how He wants to. Now you are doing the thing you've been made to do. Amen? But if we take our lives and we use them for ourselves, we not only end up being like, to go back to Daniel 5, numbered, weighed, and found wanting, we're going to be perpetually empty But secondly, we're just going to end up blaspheming God. Does that make sense? 
But when we say, Lord, my life is wholly yours, what you say is right, I will agree with you is right, and to the best of my ability, I will repent and turn, and I just give my life to you. When a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, is allowing the Lord to use the vessel of their life solely for his glory and holiness, that's when fulfillment is finally reached. You feel full of life because you're doing what you've been called to do. And anytime we step away from that, not only are we empty, but we end up blaspheming God instead of glorifying God. Does that make sense? I think this is so important because holiness gets a bad rap, you know? Holiness gets like this bad press that to be holy means to be like pruny and like grumpy and not have any fun. No, it's, it's totally the opposite. That's why it's the lie of the devil. A life fully surrendered to Jesus is a life full of life. I came to give you life and that more abundant. But see, it's just the trick. He says, look, if you really want to find life, you've got to die to yourself that you can find life. Amen? Holiness is found in being fully, 100%, exclusively set apart for his use. And that's where fulfillment, joy, life is finally found. Amen? So true. You guys are troopers. I know this, this is like, there's some chapters you're like, yes, I can't wait to get to that chapter. And then there's these kind of chapters, but there's still so much in there. Amen? All right. Well, let's stand before the heavens open again and we have to row our boat out to the car. So let's stand and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. It's so good. And Lord, we can gather on a Sunday night. I just want to pray that, Lord, as these, my brothers and sisters, have just spent time with me tonight reading your word, kind of an obscure chapter, I pray, Lord, we would hear what your spirit would say to us whether it's about washing in the water of the word, whether it's about holiness, whether it's about having a hidden life, all those things we kind of touched on, maybe something totally different. But Lord, we want to walk in the truth of your word. We love you. We praise you. We ask God you'd bless this week. Open doors for us to talk about Jesus. Help us to sit at your feet as much as we can this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.